This is a special Bar Crawl Radio report on the recent vigil in St. Mary's, Georgia, in support of the Kings Bay Plowshare 7. Recently, Becky and I were in Central California visiting her mom and brother. At the same time, the Kings Bay Plowshare 7 were at a hearing in Brunswick, Georgia, to decide how they would be allowed to argue their case in federal court. A year ago, April, at night, these seven men and women cut through a fence and entered the Kings Bay Naval Base in St. Mary, Georgia, a submarine base that houses U.S. Trident nuclear missiles. These are the um, war-making machines that are capable of destroying whole countries. Carrying hammers and baby bottles with their own blood, these seven attempted to call attention to the dangers of nuclear weaponry. While sitting at Becky's brother's dinner table, we first talked with three Catholic worker activists who were standing vigil at the gates of the Kings Bay Naval Base. We then spoke with four of the Kings Bay Plowshare defendants who were out on bail. The other three have been in federal prison for over a year. Each of these men and women faced the possibility of a 25-year sentence in a federal prison. First, we talked with Kathy Kelly while she stood outside the naval base with 80 others protesting U.S. nuclear buildup. Hello, hello. Hello, Kathy Kelly here. Sorry, I was doing another interview right then. Yes, I was just talking with uh, Anthony Donovan, and uh-huh. he, he saw you being interviewed by a, a local, um, a local uh, media person. Uh, we're on the phone here with Kathy Kelly, pacifist and um, uh, a person who's been arrested for her for her views on um, nuclear disarmament and um, we talked to Kathy back in Barcore Radio number 32 and you are now in uh, Georgia near St. Mary's um, I believe at the uh, Kings Bay Naval Base is that right? That's right we're at the Stimson Gate which is the entrance to the Kings Bay Nuclear Naval Station Right, and and could you could you just describe a bit about what you see around you, in front of you? What what's going on there? Well, on every corner, um, very fine activists are standing with signs, and these signs say things like "Disarm Trident," and Anthony Eden is holding a sign that says "Kings Bay Plowshares for a Nuclear Weapon Free World," and um, Gilberto Zamora, who is a Buddhist monk is chanting and drumming, and uh, there are several people who are um, taking video footage or doing radio interviews. There's somebody here from the National Catholic Reporter, and uh, it's it's in a way a kind of a familial gathering. People have worked for several months to to help it happen, but I think that uh, the main draw, the magnetic. Uh, core to all of this is the defendants who will be going into court tomorrow morning. Yes, and I, I do want to get your uh, some uh, feedback from you on the Kings Bay Plowshare 7. Uh, but before we do that, um, are there any national media out there at this time? No, the National Catholic Reporter, but other than that, I don't see any national media. You know, there's a great deal of fear down here in Brunswick and uh, St. Mary's and Kingsland, Georgia. So many jobs are connected to the base. Mm. And um, it doesn't surprise me that the national media doesn't nibble at this. And yet, uh, it doesn't lessen our responsibility to yes. try to 
help people understand that every single one of those Trident nuclear submarines carries the explosive potential of 1,825 Hiroshima blasts. And I'm glad you mentioned Hiroshima. Yesterday was the anniversary of, I believe it was the 74th anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima by the U.S. military. Um, what's the significance of that anniversary and, and this protest? Well, on August 6th today, we began our fast. Those Of the 88 people who have gathered, 30 are fasting for the four days. And at 8.15 in the morning in Hiroshima, in 1945, that's when the bomb was dropped, uh, and it certainly caused so much suffering and bereavement and agony and death and bloodshed. So it's, it's important for us to recall that day and also to recognize that nuclear proliferation has continued apace and that the, uh, well, you know, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King spoke of a demonic suction tube. And when you think of the resources the science, the ingenuity, the funds that have gone into the development of our nuclear arms, it, it certainly has caused many people to be without food and without clothing and without housing because what they needed couldn't be met. Uh, instead, we, we chose, you know, the United States people now with our $750 billion military budget, we annually regularly choose the weapons and wars over meeting human needs. So let, let, uh, let's, um, let's look at that a little bit. You're, you've just kind of um, put together two, two interesting uh, issues. One is hunger and the other is nuclear war. Uh, is, is there a relationship there? I heard you making a kind of a, a relationship between the two ideas. Well, yes, you know, I think about uh, President Dwight Eisenhower, who, you know, he presided over the biggest arsenal buildup in the world in history, but he did say before he left office not only to beware the unwarranted influence of the military-industrial complex, but he also said every gun made, every rocket fired, every warship launched is a theft against those who are hungry and don't have food. Uh, it, you know, he, he saw it, and, and it's something that is so very, very real in our world today. And I think that's part of the reason why all across the United States and all around the world, people take time on August 6th and again on August 9th to commemorate those who were killed in Hiroshima. Yeah, I mean, I remember as a child uh, learning about Hiroshima and thinking that, oh, oh, wow, what a great thing that was, that it ended World War II. And, um, you know, otherwise those bad, mean Japanese were going to continue to fight and, you know, thank, thank God, excuse my use of, of that word, for, you know, for, for bombing. And, and um, I think the attitude towards Hiroshima has changed over the decades. Do you, do you believe that's the case? I think that there's been very serious scholarship that has questioned whether or not the intent of the bombing of Hiroshima was to end the war or, in fact, to gain an upper hand over other countries all around the world, particularly Russia. The U.S. is now um, um, actually expanding, extending the life of these um, country killers, these Trident missiles, uh, enormously powerful missiles. Um, is protest going to be helping in any way to, you know, to assuage this, to stop it? 
Well, I think, for instance, the um, treaty that was not ratified yet, but signed in New York City at the United Nations has been the result of um, a, a very determined protest and hard work that's gone on for years. And, and the fruit of that really is, is something that can now be made manifest in lots of other settings and contexts. You know, uh, Anthony will be able to speak uh, much more to this issue, but what I'm thinking about is mm -hmm. the legislative proposal now before uh, the New York legislature, which would prohibit any kind of business or commercial transaction or research at a university related to nuclear weapons. And that's a kind of very grassroots step-by-step -step procedure, which I think is also very, very necessary. And I think that the, the action that the King's Bay 7 plowshares took helps to galvanize that kind of spirit and courage and determination. Have you been in contact at all with the local residents of St. Mary's? Um, and how, how do they feel about it? I know they work at the base, a lot of them, but what is their mm. feeling? Well, it's so interesting. Last summer, uh, a number of us walked from Savannah, Georgia to Kings Bay, Georgia. And it, when we started out in Savannah, uh, you know, there were thumbs up and honks and waves. And, you know, at least we were considered tolerable, I think. Mm -hmm. But the closer we got to the base, um, the the less inclined people were to wave or uh, acknowledge. There was just a sense of uh, almost, uh, you know, the no room at the inn mm -hmm. kind of. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we couldn't find housing for anyone. We stayed out in the state park uh, when we got closer to the base. But this year, it's been so different. Um, the, the hard work of local organizers resulted in eight households opening up their doors and saying, yes, stay with us. Um, we still have quite a few people out at the state park, but I, I've noticed a big difference. And um, for instance, a Unitarian Universalist church invited the four defendants that are out on, you know, wearing leg irons, but have been out to come and talk. And um, I know that the organizer for that talk uh, who attended the church said the social justice guy at the church was really nervous, like what's gonna happen. But afterward, he sent a very appreciative note and said uh, what courage the four who spoke with them have. And uh, you know, you couldn't find four people who've used their adult lives more effectively to work toward alleviating poverty and alleviating suffering and promoting hospitality than uh, these seven. They're, they're just people who have lived remarkably beautiful lives. And that shines through. When you talk with them, you get a sense of authenticity of people who are very, very genuine. So I hope before a jury of their peers, yep. it will be possible for people to recognize uh, that they do have the possibility to find them, to declare them innocent. I've been at these trials, similar trials in Ireland and in England, and, and seen a defendants acquitted on all counts because they were able to use the necessity defense. But the U.S. courts are structured to prohibit usage of the necessity defense. They can't talk about why they did what they did to prevent a greater harm. But we would wish that they'd at least be able to say that they were acting in accord with their religious beliefs. You know, President Trump was only too happy to see passage of the 
um, Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And um, these are very devout Catholic workers. And um, Liz McAllister, a very, very devoted um, anti-nuclear activist and civil rights activist and um, very much a, a Catholic in her tradition. So, um, you know, it, it has raised a lot of very, very interesting questions social questions, but also legal questions. Right. And, and there, will, there will be a hearing held later in the week. Um, I, I, I think I heard you say Martha uh, Hennessy and Carmen Trotta and the other two who are out on bail uh, for their actions in, um, in entering the naval base back in April of last year. Um, we're, we're speaking um, uh, recently at a local church. That's right. Um, Martha and Carmen were joined by Patrick O'Neill and Claire Grady. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's possible to see interviews with them uh, in various kinds of YouTubes. And, and, and I know that uh, they, each of them have done their homework. They've understood a lot about the legislative issues regarding the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and they know a great deal about the um, terrible consequences of nuclear weapon production and potential nuclear weapon use. Um, but I think what, what I hope comes through, because they aren't you know, likely to toot their own horns, is that these are people who have, through their commitment to the Catholic worker, made beds, cooked meals, swept floors, uh, counseled, sat next to people who are among some of the most broken and um, sort of uh, rejected people in the world. And they haven't done it, you know, just for a summer. They've done it for decades. And likewise, inside of prison. Right now, Mark Colville, when he writes from inside the prison, he is a quiet, humble man, but I know he is sitting next to prisoners, listening to their fears, listening to their their toils and troubles, and, uh, and offering people comfort. And likewise, Steve Kelly inside the Glynn County Jail is somebody whose uh, authority is very, very quiet and understated. But I'm, I'm quite sure that he's somebody who has gained the respect even of the jailers. And then Liz McAllister, um, uh, her children will be here, all three of them, uh, during this time. And what a, what a time to be separated from children and grandchildren as she's in the twilight years of her life. But, you know, about once every two weeks, I, I get a postcard from her. And it's always one that uh, clearly states her commitment, but never voices a word of complaint. Uh, yeah, we, we had Martha and Carmen on our Barclay Radio uh, number 46. And uh, I've never met such kind, gentle, open people in, in my life. And you, 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 you all, Brian is, Brian Terrell is like that. You're like that. Um, I saw well, Carmen. Brian is here. Oh, Brian is there. Okay, I, I contacted yeah. him, and I, I did. He, I guess he was busy getting back to me. But I saw Carmen at St. Joseph's house, and he was this summer. He was sweating bullets while he was getting, uh, uh, I guess, dinner ready for his guests. Um, you, um, it's it's just an amazing thing to see, and uh, a, a good use of life. I, I had one more little qu uh, set of questions I wanted to ask, and uh, the the Kings Bay um, Seven hearing is happening in a, a day or two for, um, they had entered the, um, the, um, the naval base, 
uh, at, at night. And I wonder if, if you could describe a bit about what is the security there, because it sounds like it'd be almost impossible to get on the base, but yet they did. So what kind of security are you seeing there right now? Well, um, I'm looking, but I don't see any uh, sign of a police person or a, a military person at all. Yeah. Um, this doesn't mean that they, I'm not seeing, I, I am seeing coiled wire, coiled barbed wire and, and chain link fencing. And then there's a gate and, and, and every car has to stop there. But it is pretty remarkable that they were able to enter the base, go as far into the base as they did. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why I think the base personnel want the courts to punish people who do this. And, uh, you know, they, they don't they, they're all about deterrence. They don't want anyone else to do this. Yeah. And of course, you know, we're all told to be afraid of the terrorists, be very afraid of the terrorists. Well, we should be terrified by what these nuclear weapons can do to the whole world and environmentally what we're doing um, a, a, along with that to our planet. But, uh, you know, it's kind of a, um, a, a, a fake uh, fear that gets raised, I think, about how, how much they have to guard, be on guard against terrorists. Because, you know, this is not the first time that we've seen unarmed people, uh, you know, Catholic workers like the ones you've described, go into the bases and proceed, you know, past quite a few alarm sensors and, and nobody does anything. Yeah. It's an amazing story. I mean, I have heard the story of them entering the base and uh, all the things that they were allowed, they, they, they didn't allowed to do, that they did uh, in, in protest of the nuclear missile. Uh, are, are, do you still have a few minutes? Sure. Okay. Because um, I wanted to just ask uh, two, two brief uh, questions. And one, one is um, the argument about the Trident missile is uh, that it's a deterrent for uh, um, other countries attacking the United States. What, what do you have to say to that argument? Well, I think that we should pay very close attention to what is happening right now with the intermediate range nuclear force uh, agreement being um, kind of ripped up right before our eyes. Uh, right now, China is moving ahead and developing um, weapons and could potentially deliver those weapons quite far. We've got the United States uh, telling the Saudis, sure, will give you permission to develop uh, nuclear energy, even though right now the seven permit permits have been issued without any consultation, even with the United States government, no involvement of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty Conference people, um, no involvement of the International Atomic Energy Association. It's just, you know, Trump likes Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Mm. So on that basis, he's getting the wherewithal to develop nuclear energy that could be transformed into nuclear weaponry. Now imagine in that part of the world, one more country having nuclear weapons. Israel has probably 40 thermonuclear weapons, maybe scores more, and they don't even declare it. And so never has the International Atomic Energy Association held one investigative peek at what the Israelis have. So they have introduced nuclear weapons into the region. And now, um, we are told that Iran is the great threat. That's kind of ironic because that's the one country that, that was actually in compliance mm -hmm. with everything that was demanded. The IAEA said, sure, you know, 24-7 potential to investigate what they have. They poured cement down their 
re reactors that would have been possibly creating plutonium. They did it all. And so the United States ratcheted up the economic sanctions and promises to harm and punish civilians even more in a country which under a very, very, uh, what would we say, autocratic government, uh, the civilians should not be punished for the actions of a government they can't control. But nevertheless, that government has acted honorably in terms of the agreement for the, uh, the what, what was the Iran-United States nuclear agreement that was negotiated under President Obama, mm. which um, President Trump also destroyed. Right. You could um, turn your argument around and say, you know, rather than trying to get rid of all of these dangerous, awful weapons, that we need to build more because there's such dangers out there and we need to have this deterrent uh, in, in order to stop, you know, the other countries uh, from, from attacking us. Um, yeah. Well, uh, you know, historically, anytime one country has had the weapon uh, and the other country didn't, that country has used the weapon. Mm. And I think the word now is proliferation. You know, just think about the population of China. It's five times the size of our population. You could maybe say they have five times the capacity to be brilliant that we have. Mm -hmm. And all of those brilliant scientists and inventors are being given the go signal by the Chinese government, go and make weapons as fast as you can. Now, should we feel safer? Mm -hmm. Wouldn't it make so much more sense to uh, uphold treaties, to extend treaties, to show a willingness on the part of the United States to say, look, we recognize this is a very dangerous road to follow, and we're going to start. I mean, look at the history between Khrushchev and John F. Kennedy. Eventually, even though there was a lot of bluster publicly, in private, those two men were exchanging 28-page handwritten letters saying, the greatest danger we face is the generals in our own countries. Yep. Yeah, it's insanity. And, you know, one of the posters here shows a whale, the right whale, mm -hmm. uh, trying to kind of come above the water, and above it is a mushroom cloud. And it's ironic that this is the habitat for the right whale, which is actually moving a species moving toward extinction for a number of reasons. But having Trident nuclear submarines prowl along the coastline of this uh, being's habitat is, is yet another sign of, of how dismissive the militarists are when it comes to preserving their capacity to blow up the world. Um, wow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you just, just took my breath away. I'm sorry. Um, mm. uh, what, you, you have a, a week there in, at St. Mary's. What, what else is going to be happening with, with well, the protests? Um, as I say, 30 people are fasting, including three people from afar, including a woman imprisoned in a jail, um, a federal prison in California. And who's that? Um, uh, her name is Michelle West. And it's interesting. She said, please uh, name me. And if the prison finds out she's fasting, they could put her in solitary confinement. There's a rule against that. But um, she'll be joining us and also a, a very good Franciscan sister in uh, Albany, New York, and also in Cali, Colombia, uh, our, our dear friend Ken Jones, who's been part of every action, the walk and the previous fast down here, but this time he's with the Christian Peacemaker teams in Cali, California. Uh, sorry, Cali, Colombia. Tomorrow, 
uh, we're, we'll go to the courtroom and vigil in front of the court. And I think, you know, we'll be the biggest gathering Brunswick has seen for a while since mm -hmm. they hosted the G8 gathering. And uh, some of our people will be inside the court, especially family members of the defendants. And then um, on the 8th, we're not sure if there might be more court hearings. If there aren't, we'll um, go to different spots in Brunswick and continue our vigil. And on the 9th, we'll be back out here in front of the base and we'll have a sound system. We'll read names of people who died in Hiroshima. We'll read the testimonies of people who were survivors and um, we'll then end the fast and the vigil at Crooked River State Park with a, a, a communal picnic. Wow. And then we'll head home right. to, do the, to continue to do the work. Exactly, exactly. This is Barcore Radio. We're talking with Kathy Kelly, an American peace activist, member of Voices of Creative Nonviolence, and Witness Against Torture. She's traveled all over the world, was in Iraq during, um, during the uh, U.S.-Iraq War, Afghanistan, uh, Gaza, many times, been arrested all sorts of times. And uh, we really appreciate uh, Kathy Kelly for um, talking to us, both uh, while you're in Georgia, when, and, and thank you for joining us in, in New York City for that conversation we had with Brian. Thank you, Alan and Becky. Great to be with you. And, and we'll, we'll talk again. All right. Bye now. Bye-bye. Alan. Hey, Anthony. How you doing? Wow. Good. Good. And now, where are you, Alan? Are you still in Alaska? No, no. We're we're uh, actually Get visiting back. with uh, Becky's, my wife's. You met Becky, didn't you? Yes. Yeah, you yeah, met Becky. Right. Um, in, when, when we were in Washington. Um, so, right. so we're in Santa Maria, California, visiting with her family. Oh, yeah. And we're going to be God doing bless. a podcast here at the bar where we used to date, um, yeah. way, way before we got married. And then, and then oh, on Friday, wonderful. we go, we travel up to Banff, Canada, and we're going to be walking, uh, walking on a glacier and we'll, oh, we'll be okay. doing another podcast with the guy who's the glacier guide up in Jasper. Um, thank you, thank you. Yeah. So, but we, but we wanted to get get a report on what's going on there at um, at St. Mary's at the uh, U.S. Naval Base. Yeah, um, yeah. We're right outside the gate, main gate here. Absolutely. And I, I just, uh, you know, I just want to connect what you're about to do uh, with what we're doing right now. You great. Know, just, uh, I have no idea. You know, I don't. I didn't get to hear everything Kathy was saying, but. Uh, she probably covered everything pretty thoroughly, but I, I'm so psyched that you're going to be touching base with that glacier because we know, you know, just an accident, a single accident or a small exchange of these weapons, it just will set back all our climate goals like immediately. And uh, just to tie it into some... And you're talking about immediately. Is, you're talking about within seconds. Well, it, it might take a couple hours. A couple hours, yeah. Yeah, sure, but, but it would just really set back our climate and harm that glacial. You're going to be witnessing it yourself, and I'm really psyched that you're going to be up there. And are you on the coast in California? Yeah, Santa Maria is just it's central California. It's on on the coast. Yeah. It's kind of chilly here. Yeah, because yeah, we get so a lot can of you sea see whales. Um, can you see whales. I've out never there, I've never seen whales from here. No. Yeah. No, uh, but I know there's whales anyway. down there, right? Um, yes, and uh, I end up around New York, actually. Yeah, you can mm -hmm. see them up there, too. But uh, just to connect with 
with that, we got these submarines in our waters and uh, litting those waters with radiation from Fukushima and everywhere else. So I just, uh, and if you're by that beautiful coast over there, I just think of all the wondrous creatures on this planet that we're also standing out here for and including in this vigil. Uh, just the creatures, our, our animals, our pets, but also these magnificent souls that are endangered. So, uh, yeah, it's, yep, it's all yep. connected, right? I mean, it's all you very can't, connected. Yeah, the, the nuclear yep. missiles, the Trident missiles are part of our world. And is it a part yeah. of the world that's helping us or not? Well, I, I don't see how they're helping us at all. But uh, anyway, that's that's, of course, what we've been told for 70 years. But it's really every day it increasingly endangers us greatly. We're talking with Anthony Donovan works for an end to nuclear weapons. Um, he's active in the Catholic worker movement and a member of Witness Against Torture when trying to close the prisons in Guantanamo. And I'm sure you're doing a lot more. You're, you're a documentary filmmaker um, yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah. a physical yeah. therapist. Um, uh, nurse for many years. Working nurse, with, uh, nurse for many years. Hospice care right now. Right. So I'm going to go across the street right now and get Brian Terrell. Okay, I will, I will and, hold on. Yep, okay, and uh, he's in sight. Uh, Brian is just back from being all over the world. Well, Phil, thank you. Hang on one second. Hello, Alan. Hey, Brian. So great to hear from you. I, I sent you an email, and I didn't hear back from you. I didn't know whether you were going to be there. I guess I should have assumed you were going to be there at the Naval Base. How are you doing? I'm, I'm well, yeah. You've been, you've been traveling, I hear. Yeah, I've been. Uh, I was home for two weeks. I was at. Uh, uh, You're Michelle at the farm in Germany. Um, I was at the farm for two weeks, and uh, before that, I was two weeks in Germany at the uh, uh, air base at Bruchel, the, the, uh where there's U.S. nuclear weapons at a uh, German Luftwaffe base. So, so this, uh, this has been a, this has been a, a nuclear um, weapons protest uh, month or two for you. Oh yeah, in uh, in. Uh, the end of uh, end of May at Memorial Day, it was a protest in Kansas City. There's a uh, the National Nuclear Security Administration uh, has built a new factory, uh, and they're producing the uh, uh, the new B sixty one bomb. I think it's uh, version twelve is being made there right now. That's uh, the nuclear bomb that's going to replace the ones that are at, uh, at the shell. And, uh, yeah, and then in April, I was in, uh, at, uh, I was at the uh, nuclear test site in Nevada and spent four days in jail uh, for being arrested at the uh, nuclear test site there. Oh, so, yeah, I've been... Uh, You've been busy. Putting on the miles. Yeah. About, uh, so how are you feeling about, about your efforts? Um... I'll tell you, I'm, I'm uh, you know, some people ask how I find the strength to keep going with the activism, but I, I think it's the uh, activism that gives me the hope and the strength to go on with the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, because, uh, you know, what, what we're doing here in Kings Bay, it's on the 74th anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima. And, uh, you know, we're at a time when our government is abrogating every treaty uh, you know, that would control nuclear weapons at a time when uh, we're putting a trillion dollars into modernizing and and extending the lifespans of our nuclear weapons. 
uh, making new, uh, more usable nuclear weapons. It's very essential that we be here uh, places like this and to say no and to speak out. As most Americans don't know, any of this is happening. But it's also essential that we do it for ourselves. It's like this is like, this is a um, very solemn. Uh, day and, and and it's a very serious event, but it's also a very joyous reunion, and we 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 have to come together and give each other hope and uh, and encourage one another. So it's it's uh, at the same time it's, it's we're, we're thinking about uh, the worst horrors this planet has seen and the possibility of of uh, in fact the the very imminent likelihood of more. Uh, but we're also um, celebrating that we're still here, that, that the planet is still going along, and and that um, uh, yeah, we still have one another. Just talking to um, to Anthony Donovan about the relationship between nuclear proliferation and um, climate change. Um, oh yeah, Becky and I are going up to walk on a glacier in next week, and. Um, you know those glaciers are melting, and uh, there's a there's a connection between what you're doing, and that uh, that that climate uh, debacle that we're we're heading towards. Yeah, the, the connection is is very very clear, and I and I think too. Yeah, you know, we've talked, uh, we met over the issue about Yemen, and uh, the, the 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 war that's going on there, which is uh, which is a genocide really is uh you know the extinction of our species that we fear is is, is already happening <laughs> um there and the the one of the the flashpoints right now about nuclear war is is between the united states and iran which is all about the you know, rather than you know our our uh, department of energy the u.s department of energy is spending billions of dollars on designing new nuclear weapons, trillions of dollars, uh, and not doing research on renewable energy. And, you know, the reason, um, you know, one of the main reasons behind all the tension in the Gulf is about with a dwindling supply of fossil fuel rather than finding an alternative, uh, we're going to fight for that last drop of oil. Uh, we are willing to to risk the fate of the entire planet over squeezing that last bit of oil from the uh, from the Persian Gulf. Um, so these these are all uh, these are all connected, and I'm and I'm gratified that more people are realizing these connections. This is all the same story. I mean, all this stuff: uh, climate change, n- nuclear, the growth of nuclear weapons, hunger in the world, um, strife in Yemen. Um, the the bombing of children's buses. It's in you know Donald Trump. It's all the same thing, um, and and I guess you see the connections. And I and I think even you know employment and the hopes of our kids here in this country. I just saw um, in the New York Times on the plane getting here that that uh, that, that uh, only one percent of the shoes in the United States are made here. Like more than eighty percent are made in China, so we're dependent on China for our shoes. We're not making our own shoes. Yeah, we're not doing. We're not exporting anything but but, but weapons. And the big, uh, you know, the biggest part of our economy now is private prisons. Is is like like what kind of hope do do 
our kids coming up have of making a living, just doing honest work, just finding honest things to to do with their time and their lives. I was sitting next to two uh, Navy guys coming here to the base on on the plane uh, yesterday. You know, two very, you know, I didn't want to argue with them. They just decided young idealistic kids. And this is not working at a nuclear sub base is not their uh, not their dream, but they're young people who just don't have any. Uh, uh, you know, what else are they going to do? What else are they going to do? They can't afford to go to college. They, they, uh, they we don't have shoe factories to work at, <laughs> or ballpoint pen factories, or any of those things. We're not doing. You know, and 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 we have to have mastery of the sea so that we can have these huge ships cargo ships carrying containers of of things from china that we could be making here uh and, and uh but yeah we, we need to change everything you know they're the kind of change the world has to make uh and the united states has to be first because we've been leading in all the bad things um <laughs> you 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 are a uh, catholic uh, a learned catholic and, and a member of the catholic worker movement uh, is there an answer? And I, this is a big question, Brian. I, I know that, but is there an answer within the Catholic worker movement that can um, bring all of these um, threads together and create a narrative that can move us forward? Wow, that's hard. <laughs> well, I think you know. Maybe you half, can work on oh, it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, half the time, you know, I was I was two weeks in Europe and then protesting nuclear weapons there. Then I was. Then I was two weeks <laughs> on the farm, uh, tending goats and making cheese and the delicious cheese, uh, which you've shared with Becky and I, <laughs> and uh, making, uh, picking the okra and cutting the on and all this is I, you know, I think that's a part of the what the Catholic worker is about is not just uh, protesting the wars and not just. Um, uh, feeding and housing the people who are displaced by a by a screwed up economy, and I'm, by saying just, I'm not diminishing it or saying that it's any less. But it's, but also it's. Um, I think the idea of the farm is looking toward a time when uh, people are growing their own food and making their own clothes and doing the things you know, or or doing that in small communities and uh, not dependent on on enslaving on an entire planet. Uh, when peace breaks out, when people in places like Honduras are able to decide what they're going to do for a living and how they're going to use their land and not be saddled with debt, when people in China are able to uh, uh, not have to work in sweatshops so we can have our sheep shed from at Walmart, um, we're going to have to be doing a lot of that stuff ourselves. And uh, either personally or within small communities, we can't we can't keep going the way we're going. And so the the farm side of the Catholic worker is it's to try to uh, uh, again in a piecemeal and insufficient and not enough <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, way we're we're uh, uh, you know trying to find an alternative. Can can I posit a a possible answer to that? It's it's a looking. It, it's, it's, yeah, no, no. I I I I love to hear you speak, um, but it's it's an attempt. It's a movement to attempt to make lives lives that are worth living. Yes. You know. Yes, thank you. We're talking about those two young military um, na- naval um, 
cadets or whatever, uh, and and you know what is their lives going to be living on a Trident nuclear base? Um, mm-hmm. You know what what is the outcome of their energies? You know, and what is the outcome of your energy in living on a farm? Yeah. You know, um, and this idea yeah. of a life worth living. So anyway, that's yeah. that. I mean, I, I've listened to you for for quite for over a year now, and. I think I've I've learned something about this idea of um, g- giving yourself over to to um, to a cause, mm-hmm. and why you do it. You know, even even if you know people aren't all listening to it, and um, maybe the narrative will get out there eventually. I I, I hope it does. And Barcore Radio is going to do its little part about you know putting the story yeah. out there. You know. Well, I thank you for that. Uh, and I thank you, and I thank you, and I, I look forward to uh, seeing you again. We're talking to. Um, Ryan Terrell, um, he's um, a peace activist, a pacifist, um, a member of uh, Voice of Creative Nonviolence, of um, Witness Against Torture, trying to get the Guantanamo prison base closed, a farmer um, in Malloy, Iowa, uh, and we've talked talk to you several times, and it's been, a, it's been a great pleasure meeting you and being with you, mm-hmm. Ryan. Always, thank you. And um, and we'll 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 continue the conversation. The next day, we spoke with four of the Kings Bay Plowshare Seven. The day before, they had argued in the federal court in Brunswick, Georgia, that the case be dropped based on RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which requires the government to prove a compelling state interest if it restricts a person's free exercise of religious beliefs a defense successfully used by the religious right. We talked with Carmen Trotta, Martha Hennessy, Claire Grady, and Patrick O'Neill. Why don't we just start with you? You just had a hearing with um, Judge Lisa Godby Wood, U.S. District Judge of the Southern District of Georgia. Um, Before we get to how that hearing went, uh, how are you all feeling? Probably all feeling very grateful for the fact that 80 people from around the country uh, came down uh, uh, to be with us and to protest against the uh, nuclear system and the and remembering the, the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I think we I think that's Carmen. Carmen, you're speaking, right? Yes. That's Carmen Trotta. Yes. Uh, the New York Catholic worker. Uh, Extraordinarily grateful for that. A number of the people, I think it was 34. Uh, people decided to fast, and I thought that I would decide to fast with them, and I have so far. And um, and so we, when we left the courtroom and all these folks wanted to greet us, it's a very celebratory moment, and we're going to these various events where there's food constantly on the table. Right. Uh, so I'm eight disgruntled <laughs> that I can't eat. Yeah. <laughs> how, how many of you are fasting? Maybe 20. But all, 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 four, all four of you are fasting? Uh, 35 are fasting. Wow. And not just in Georgia. They're fasting in other places in the United States also. Yes. How long will the and, fast and last? Till tomorrow afternoon, through through the vigil with Na- for Nagasaki. Okay. Right, because the Hiroshima only- anniversary was on Monday, and the bombing of Nagasaki is coming up tomorrow, or is it today? No, tomorrow. But you know what today is? No. Today is probably the most important uh, day in terms of the termination of World War II. 
because in August 8th, the Soviet Union entered the war against Japan. Mm. And that is really what led Japan to collapse. Not, not the atomic bomb. Not the atomic bombs. We had already bombed 67 cities before we bombed Hiroshima uh, and Nagasaki. Mm. Firebombed 67 cities in Japan. And the great dilemma in Japan, as I understand it, uh, was we had asked for um, unconditional surrender, and that meant the doing away with the, um, what do they call him? The emperor. Mm. And, uh, and it was the emperor himself who decided to who made it plain that the war needed to come to an end after Russia. Remember, they were in, there was a neutrality pact between Russia and Japan. And up until the very end, Japan was, was going to the Russians to try and get uh, negotiate a better ending to the war. And at the end, Russia basically betrayed them and betrayed the neutrality pact. And uh, and they did so, you know, to end the war, obviously. So, and they did. So the narrative that the war ended because of two atomic bombs dropped by the U.S. Uh, military is is a false narrative. Yes. No, that we wanted we wanted to we wanted to establish our hegemony right after World War II, including against Russia. Yeah, yeah. Um, Claire Grady and Patrick O'Neill are with us. Yes. 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 How how are you how are you two feeling at this point? I'm I'm pretty tired. I I, mean, I think it took a lot more out of me emotionally than I was expecting, mm. um, and maybe the fast is contributing to that. Although I don't have any hunger pangs, but my sense of smell is much better. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> but uh, a side effect. But uh, I was I was very happy that um, four of my children, uh, my my first grandchild and my wife were here. They came down from. North Carolina and from Atlanta. So we had family and, you know, Claire had all three of her sisters and her niece here and her brother would have been here except he's sick. And um, so we, you know, we had a nice, a nice gathering of friends. And I, you know, one of the things that it's been kind of lonely for us here in South Georgia, because we had some court appearances where the seven of us were there and there were only four supporters in the courtroom. So yesterday, you know, there was, I think there's really was close to 100 people here over the course of the last few days. But there were definitely, there was one gathering where my daughter counted heads and there were 88 people in the room. My goodness. So, uh, you know, that was really uplifting for our spirits because we really needed to have a sense of the greater community being behind us. Right. Right. uh, I'm grateful. I'm really grateful for that. I just want to say that's Patrick O'Neill. He's a North Carolina Catholic worker, and um, you have—I uh, think you—I think I read you have six children. I have six daughters, two sons. Wow, eight, and then and then grandchildren. Eight and two grand. And when and when you when you hear me say that, you need to be looking at my wife, not me. <laughs> okay, okay. She did most of the work. She, Cla- she was she was pregnant for six years, and she nursed for fifteen. So we'll just call her the goddess. Oh my gosh! Yes. <laughs> and Claire, how are you? Hey there. I'm, I'm well, thanks be to God. I'm a little tired, and but just super grateful. And I'm glad that we're not just here for that court date, that we are here, as Carmen and others have said, um, for the focus on the base, on the weapons, and on our part in dismantling these homicidal weapons and the systems that they enforce and the sort of the seeds that lead to them. 
and uh, the antidote is definitely community. Um, and we had this most beautiful mass here at the house where we are staying on at 711 Union Street. And there were probably about 25 people on the porch. Um, and we had the word and the bread and the wine and blessing and song and sharing. And it just couldn't have been better. I'm over the top over-the-top grateful. And our co-defendant, Mark Colville, called in from the jail as he is in the practice of doing to join us for the daily mass reading. So we put the phone in a bowl and then we hear from him and then we pass the phone. Anyway, people talk to him through the phone during that time. And, and that, that's Claire Grady. She's uh, of the Ithaca, New York Catholic worker and just spoke about Mark Colville, who um, is uh, from... Um, New Haven, Connecticut Catholic worker. Uh, how are they doing, the ones that are in jail, Elizabeth and Mark and Father Stephen? How how are they doing? Liz got to see her three uh, children, uh, Frida, Jerry, and Kate, for the first time since uh, Easter of 2018. It was a contact visit, and Liz was over the moon with that. And um, Mark and Steve, they're all, all three of them are just remarkable in their stamina and their strength and their joy of what they're going through. Um, and it's just amazing to, to behold. Their we joy. have not seen. Amazing. Yeah. yeah, right. And we hadn't seen Mark and Steve uh, uh, for a few months until uh, yesterday at the hearing. Right. Wow. And again, no. Elizabeth, Mark, and no. Steve are in prison at this point for their action at. Um, Kings Bay um, Naval Base. Yeah. If I could just add to that thing, Martha emphasized the joy, which I think is ultimately our, our duty. Not only duty, but it, it's a natural outpouring of being uh, being in community and being honest and loving, that that's what happens and the spirit resides. But my sense of Mark, for instance, as he appeared in court with us before the judge, is that sort of the longer you spend in those hell holes of our jail, the more pissed off you are to. Mm. And he wanted to tell the truth about the ugliness and brutality of that system. And it doesn't always look nice when people tell the truth about that. And it was really obvious to me that it was at those places that judge wanted him to shut up. Interesting. Well, so then before you, um, we, we want to ask you about what happened yesterday, but I'm curious now, how can you describe to our listeners what it's like for Mark and Father Stevens and, and Elizabeth? They're just not a- allowed contact with their co-defendants. They, they have no access to a law library. Their contact with any attorneys is very minimal. Um, there's delays in them getting the uh, paperwork to work on their case. And Mark just reiterated that, you know, he has a, a huge support system compared to his um, fellow inmates there. So if you get any of his family for any or any one of them, any visitors that come down, they can come as far as from California. They can come from the other side of the planet, and they're they're only allowed 15 minutes to to sit uh, and meet with them. And I just I just want to mention so uh, that people know if they want to contact Elizabeth McAllister, Mark Colville, or Father Stephen Kelly, if you go on the Kings Bay Plowshare Seven website, there are specific instructions on how to address uh, postcards to them. And I recommend you do that if you want to you know, send your best wishes to them. Yeah. So what happened yesterday in court? Well, yesterday was a, was a basically an oral argument, a response to 
the government had we've, we've we've been using a statute known as the Religious Freedom Restoration Act as part of our defense, and it's a fairly, in some ways simple, but in some ways legally complex statute. It's um, it's basically saying that the government has to make a determination that if we hold if we have sincerely held religious beliefs, that the government must use the least restrictive means to punish us. So, since the government used what we would consider the most restrictive means, charging us for three felonies from the get-go, we're, we're arguing that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act should be used to dismiss our charges or at least allow us to use that defense with the jury. So this was a hearing about that. The government has said, no, uh, we're not going to allow that. And that was the decision of a, man, a magistrate because the pretrial motions are handled by a magistrate, but ultimately it's up to the trial judge. So yesterday, we were in court for the first time with Lisa Wood, the federal court district court judge, who was going to be our trial judge if this case goes to trial. But she makes the ultimate decision on whether to dismiss our charges or offer some other accommodation or say, I agree with the magistrate. I'm going to set a trial date. So yesterday, the seven of us and the government kind of went back and forth on the elements of the, of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And the judge gave both sides only 90 minutes, which was easily enough for the prosecution because they just had to do a, a few minutes to sort of reiterate that they agree with the magistrate's decision. Yeah. And, um, and they, we didn't have enough time really. Um, I think Father Steve would have spoke if we'd had more time, but he ceded his time to, to a lawyer who was making legal arguments, Carmen and I and Claire, uh, although I think Claire did a good job of maintaining her, her, her composure. I, I felt a little bit uh, out of sorts and I was reading too fast and cutting a bunch of things out. And that was because the judge put a lot of pressure on us. So, but even though I think we, we did a good, we had a good presence in the courtroom. I felt like, I don't know how anyone else. Feels. And so is now she, del is the judge deliberating? Well, she's given us another week and she's given the government another week to file any, anything we want basically that contributes to the case, which is an indication that, uh, she's not made up her mind yet. If she's asking for more information, she's still pondering. And, and understand something, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act has been often used by very conservative groups, not always, mm -hmm. but it's been mostly in civil cases and administrative cases. So we're applying it to a felony case, which is not unprecedented, but highly unusual. And so... The, the lawyer, Vern Walker from New York City, who's been helping us, he's our, he's our, our Religious Freedom Restoration Act expert. Um, he's very optimistic that this judge, that this judge is going to make an accommodation, although we don't know what it is. But he also thinks that she probably feels like that our case has just dragged on too long and that she'd like to get it over with. So it's going to be interesting to see how fast she can respond, because she's going to have to put the final version of the rejection or well, especially if it's a rejection, she's going to have to put the final version in her writing, you know, and she can certainly borrow things from the magistrate's writing and just affirm them. But we're just waiting for her decision, and we and she's going to be obviously thinking it through, reading over things. There's already, I think, Vern estimated 500 pages of transcripts and, and motions and friends of court uh, offerings. So it's it's quite a complex case now that it's dragged on for so long. So we're waiting after next week, we have one more week of a deadline to submit more documents and more, more for our defense, and then it's in her hands, and we just have to wait.
this has been going on now for 15 months. You've all have been under house arrest with those oh. ankle bracelets on for 15 months now. And finally, you got assigned to a U.S. district judge. That's Lisa Good Godby Wood. And I'm sure the three hours that you were there, you were looking at her face and must have been noticing her moods. And I mean, did you get anything from her as to um, <laughs> the hope that maybe she's going to um, give a positive um you know, ruling. Do you want to say one answer that question? We've been we've been told that she's a, by some of our lawyers that this is the brightest woman, uh, the right brightest person they've ever met, um, and uh, she she was extraordinary. They, that she runs a tight ship, um, and that seems quite true. Running a tight ship um, is almost an understatement. Mm-hmm. Um, you're a very very controlling force over the process. Um, she confronted two of our lawyers immediately, interrupted them as they were speaking, and began to ask them questions. And Bill uh, Quigley and, and Stephanie McDonald uh, were both sort of up to it and did a sort of uh, interesting dance with her on, on the legal questions. Um, but she was, um, you know, she was very she was on the offensive sort of throughout. And yeah, uh, yeah she's she's quite a. He's quite a force in the courtroom. I should. I wanted to mention uh, also, which Patrick, I'm almost surprised that he didn't mention it, because uh, she had faced a, a, a trial as a federal district judge, uh, which the legislation was very was related to and very like RIFRA, and she was overturned on appeal, and and yeah, and no, no one would be, uh, want that to happen. It, it's a big stain on their career. So it does seem to us that she is also uh, this very fine mind is to really go to work uh, to produce a document that will assure that she does not get overturned on appeal. Because we use the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, we were able to call expert witnesses, including a theologian and a bishop, to support our, you know, the fact that we have sincerely held religious beliefs. And the court did agree. They said that our actions were actions by seven people with sincerely held religious beliefs, that her actions were prophetic, sacramental, and uh, she called it prophetic, he called it, the magistrate, prophetic, sacramental, symbolic denuclearization, that we engaged in that. And a lot of times in plasture actions, you know, the prosecution wants to just say, these people are a bunch of religious zealots who took the law into their own hands. That's not what this court said. This this U.S. this U.S. magistrate who wrote this wrote this um, you know opinion that's his words. I'm using his words. Right. So it's it's quite a remarkable and unprecedented thing to have happened in in plowshare history. So if if your argument is supported and Rifra becomes more powerful in the sense of your movement, um, does that then allow you then to continue with your protests in this way? Good question. <laughs> Think about what makes it both years. Hmm. Well, uh, that's a disputed issue in the community. Yeah, yeah. and I, I guess it's, we're jumping the gun here because we. I, I'm sorry to use the word gun. We're, we're you know, we're jumping ahead here, and, and that maybe we should we should see what happens. But, but the question still stands. What if it goes against you? Will it narrow the you know your ability to? Will, will it, lead to- it would keep us in the. It would largely, I think, keep us in the box that the Plowshares movement has ended up in uh, in the past. That the 
um, that they, the government would basically reduce uh, the trial to whether or not we entered the base illegally, whether or not we cut the fence, whether or not uh, we threw mm-hmm. blood here. Mm-hmm. And those would be the only things we could speak to. We wouldn't be able to speak to the power of the nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. the likely, you know, being two minutes to midnight, once again, uh, the international relations that are making uh, a nuclear exchange more and more possible, uh, the, to- the, the toxic effects of nuclear weapons uh, and even their, their production. Uh, so all those things would be off the charts. The only thing is, did we do all those things that we, we openly admit to have doing right. because we believe yeah. that the weapon, we believe that the weapon systems are are illegal. Right. We believe that it's we who are upholding the law. Right. And and if that was the case, you'd be found guilty, I assume, because you did all those things. Well, I mean, if you're going to get it, so if we're able to speak directly to a jury of our peers, and the Religious Freedom Restoration Act used that as an affirmative defense would help that, yes. then it may very well be that we would be acquitted by a jury or that we would get a hung jury. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's our, that's our great hope. The hope in that is, that is that is that people become aware more and more of the nuclear system and that there are other trials at which this can be used, and by juries themselves, uh, the word would come down that the weapon, increasingly that the weapons are illegal, and yeah. people would begin to understand that. Yeah. So if she dismisses, you won't get a trial. Yeah. So you won't get an That's opportunity right. to make the the to discuss what you want to discuss in court. So <clears> how, so mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I missed your name. I'm oh, I'm, I'm Rebecca. Becky? Rebecca. Becky. That's, Rebecca. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hi. Hi, Hi there. Hi. Oh, this, this I is like. Claire. I appreciate your question. Yeah, this is Claire. Um, so, in a sense, we even though we've not had a jury with our peers. This last year has been quite a lot of time in court with affidavits and evidentiary hearings and arguments that is, I think, when we made the decision to pursue this RIFRA motion, that we understood that this was opening space that typically hasn't been open in these trials before or these cases before. So it's, we still see it, at, or at least I do. I, I shouldn't speak for other people. But I think we all agreed. We all four, all seven of us agreed to go forward with this RIFRA, the motion with RIFRA, and knowing that it might lead to dismissal of charges and no trial. Okay. But Presumably, all of this conversation has been valuable for not just the courts and possible precedent in regard to RIFRA and religious practitioners of nonviolent and symbolic disarmament, but also for each of us in knowing, yeah, there were several things that came up for me. I know you're trying to get what is the outcome here? And what are the implications is where I, where I see your question. Yes, yes. So, is that right, Becky? Yes, I'm so, blundering through that question, yes. Yes. No, you weren't blundering through it at all. We, it's complicated, and no, it, it, um, it was not a problem from you. But just to help you, on our attempt to help you understand, there, there could indeed be, if the judge says, this is, um, I'm not going to dismiss the charges, and then writes, uh, this, her decision with bad case law and bad arguments, then she will likely be, that will be sent to the 11th Circuit for appeal. And then 
she runs the risk of being overturned on appeal. And that overturning in, a, in the 11th Circuit appeal, that will become precedent for future action. Right. right? Yeah. So if we don't get, if you don't go to the appeal and it just like disappears because she dismisses us, um, I'm not sure that might be a green light for people to act in the same way we did, but I'm not sure where that goes in terms of precedent in a, in a court, in the, the appeals court. And I don't know if that makes any sense to you. I used to not understand this myself. I always thought if you get an acquittal, that's like the best thing. And I still think that's a great thing. But if you get overturned on a, you get a conviction overturned on an appeal with an argument that supports your action, then that opinion actually gets more mileage legally. That's interesting. Does that make sense? Yes. No, it then is. it gets cited yeah. in future cases. It legally gets cited, and the judge, your defendants, you as defendants, get to say, "Well, in case of uh, Jackie Allen versus U.S. government." Um, it says here that you should be allowed to present this and this and this argument, and so that trial has more possibilities. It's a precedent in the, in and, the future. And, and that's but, and, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Well, it's what what was tricky for me as I was trying to understand this in my youth was an appeal. It has an another value that sends a message sort of to the people. So while it doesn't stand up in court and it can't be cited uh, in a future trial by defendants, it has tremendous energy. It energizes people when you get uh, an acquittal. Um, But I think maybe I had some final remarks if I haven't utterly confused you at this point. (laughs) And that is that the, the, the three things that come up for me are one, educating ourselves as to what the what's going on with these weapons in our name, right? And that's ongoing work that everybody can do. Two, understanding what our possibilities and obligations are as citizens and Christians of conscience to withdraw our consent from that deadly system yep. that's killing in our name every day. And three, then is sort of like what these legal arguments and the legal landscape that we can navigate to possibly keep a door open for future actions legally. But everything anyone does ever that's truthful and honest and loving is paving the way for the next thing to happen behind it. You you went out uh, for this action uh, on the King's Bay Naval Base um, on Martin Luther King Day back in April in 2018, and you carried uh, two banners. One was a statement by uh, Martin Luther King. It said, the ultimate logic of racism is genocide. The ultimate logic of racism is genocide. I just want to let that sink in. That's that it, Racism, genocide. But then you also came up with the ultimate logic of the Trident Missile, is omnicide, the end of humankind. But not only that, but it's the humankind killing itself. You want to get that message out, but the recent democratic debates, nothing was said about nuclear disarmament, as far as I remember, or very little about it, and it certainly didn't get the news. How do you get this debate started? How do we start this narrative into the imagination of the American people? 
This is Martha. I thought I saw one reference that um, nuclear weapons were briefly brought up in one of the debates, but I don't have any information or sightings on that. Mm -hmm. I had read that somewhere, mm -hmm. and I didn't read it, read it at that moment. Um, but as far as our voice being raised with this particular action, we're, we're just one part of a very big movement that really is trying to uh, bring on nuclear abolition. And I think this trial, if it is to happen, will certainly, um, in some of the media circles, uh, give some coverage to the issue. But as far as getting it into the presidential debates, that's a really good question. There isn't anybody running for president of this country who doesn't believe in, in nuclear weapons or the military. I mean, you don't run for president on that. I mean, you don't hear... Bernie Sanders, who they accuse of being a socialist, talking about nuclear disarmament. And I mean, it's pretty far to the left. So I, I think that it's a mistake to think that we're going to get any relief from a Democratic president. You know, I'm old enough to remember uh, Jimmy Carter getting elected and all the hopefulness that came with that. And then Bill Clinton getting elected and all the hopefulness of that. And then Barack Obama, who is now he, he began the process of one point two trillion dollars to upgrade our nuclear arms system over the next 30 years. So putting your hope in the Democrats, I think, is a waste of time. And I, I, I wouldn't even, I mean, I think the work that we have to do is in the grassroots. I think I think we have to lead and then the leaders will follow. I don't think it works the other way around. And you're right. It is. It, we learned something, just like you said, when we came down here and we thought, well, we're going to open up this criticism of this sub-base you know, that's been here for 35 years and now get people talking about what this thing represents, the evil it represents. And that didn't happen. At least it hasn't happened yet. It has, we have increased our presence there and more activists are involved. So some good things have come out of it, but for the most part, nuclear weapons are inconsequential. One of our best support people, she's a Unitarian. She said to me one time when, you know, one of the gatherings over the last year, she said, you know, and this is a woman who works on a lot of progressive issues. She says, nuclear weapons just aren't on my radar. I don't even think about them until yeah. you guys came here. Yeah. So the point is, we have to make people not become completely comfortable with this idea that mutually assured destruction, the, the U.S. policy with regard to nuclear weapons, means that these weapons are just props and they'll never be used. As we talk right now, there are people in the Pentagon sitting around tables talking too, and they're planning the end of the world. And that's the problem. Yes, and that and it sounds like science fiction. Uh, you know, uh, the uh, the Kubrick film about the bomb, but it's real. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely real. So I think we should remember that we have a fairly controlled media in the United States, and there does need to be uh, a lot of uh, teaching going on. Uh, recently, I, I wish I could remember it more exactly, but it was the Nation magazine that I think put out ten questions for the. Uh, people running for president, and uh, that had to do with nuclear weapons. And never once did they come up with the notion, they didn't suggest at all that nuclear abolition was, could ever be on the table, as though they themselves, a progressive magazine like The Nation, themselves can, cannot seem to think of the possibility of nuclear abolition. I also think that most Americans do not know the degree to which, since the uh, G.W. Bush uh, administration, the United States has surrounded Russia via NATO, and, and NATO uh, states being brought on. We have very closely surrounded Russia. We're putting missile defense systems up on the borders, and 
those missiles that are in the missile defense system, the great problem with that is that Russia has every good reason to believe that those missiles are nuclear-armed missiles. So we, do, we, do, we, have, we have provoked a new Cold War, quite deliberately, or so it seems. And then when you look at the upgrades in our weapons, so Hans Christensen, the bulletin of atomic scientists, uh, he had an article not that long ago saying that, listen, 10 years ago, 20% of the weapons on the Trident submarine could hit hard targets in Russia. Now, today, 10 years later, he says the, the figure is now 100%. So the upgrading of, of, of weapons is itself a gross violation of the nonproliferation treaty. But no one seems to care. Yep. No one even seems to know about it. Yep. So those are some of the motivating factors, I think, that would get people charged up. Um, this is Martha. Uh, my son and daughter are uh, 42 and 37, and they really have not heard in their lifetime enough about the nuclear arsenal. And I think that we have a whole generation of uh, young people who just don't have that awareness that we had in the 1980s. And I think that needs to be dealt with. Climate disruption is uh, has a high profile, but uh, nuclear annihilation does not. And, you know, the human mind just keeps turning away from that reality, I'm afraid. Claire, any ideas? About how to get this conversation more out there in the dominant culture? I think that, so. Changing our imagination, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's what we're doing when we do grassroots action and community building and organizing and the women that are the women and men that are doing organizing down in Brunswick and St. Mary's um, are yeah making little inroads but you know like like when Occupy happened and any number of things it starts with this little group of people and then poof like this unexpected moment things will take off and you're not really responsible for that moment but you just kind of keep going at what you're doing I don't actually have the the secret um, ingredient, but I know that uh, keeping going is an essential ingredient. <laughs> yeah. If any of our listeners wanted to educate themselves, what would you suggest that they do? Are there books to read? Are there websites to go on? What would you suggest? Uh, we carried onto the base Daniel Ellsberg's book, The Doomsday Machine, and I would highly recommend that. And William Hartung does a lot of writing about the cost of war. And there are lots of books out there to uh, reference. Okay. There's a woman named Rosalie, Sister Rosalie Bertel, who's no longer alive. But when she was, she lived and worked as a, a nun. And her work was partly epidemiology. Anyway, she did studies after Three Mile Island, for instance, about the contamination of radioactivity. And um, the industry tried to kill her by running her off the road, and her, her order sent her to Canada. Um, but she wrote a book. She published two books that I'm aware of, and one is called No Immediate Danger, and the other is called The Late Planet Earth. And wow. in No Immediate Danger, which I think was published in the 80s, and it, it starts off talking about Peru and the places where uranium is mined. And she puts her study of the nuclear beast in the context of colonization. So I would really encourage listeners to also look at that piece, that all the mining 
refining, testing, and dumping of radioactive material happens on indigenous land, and it happens here in Turtle Island and around the world, but also that these weapons very clearly are part of the colonial, um, it's not just an experiment, enforced colonization, right? And um, you can't do what you will without having the biggest gun, and we wield it with impunity. Um, so reading Rosalie Bertel is one of my suggestions. And and knowing knowing that there are other organizing efforts, like indigenous organizers in the Southwest, they call themselves Nuclear Issues Study Group, and they had a conference that they held in in New Mexico in December of 2017 called Dismantling the Nuclear Beast, and you can YouTube that. There's tons, there's hours of testimonials and uh, presentations that those organizers put on from uh, grassroots organizers. And also in the, the in Haudenosaunee territory where I live in New York, Seneca women have been organizing uh, for cleanup of the nuclear dumping uh, up in Seneca territory, and you can get into that too. Here's Carmen. I think in line with Claire, in terms of uh, best case news source for nuclear waste in particular, is the NukeWatch uh, site. Uh, www.nukewatch.org. Um, I think people would also do well to learn more about the Treaty for the Prevention of Nuclear Weapons and uh, to get on their website also. And uh, I should mention that their, their tactics, they use a lot of uh, international law. And again, they are of the mind that the, uh, that the weapons are, are themselves illegal. Um, you should know also that there is there has been a bit of a, something of an uptick, I think, in nuclear activity for the last for the in Germany right now, there are people who've been cutting on to the Buchel uh, air base there where the United States uh, gives Germany uh, 20 nuclear weapons. And so for 20 weeks, uh, one week for every nuclear weapon, they're having people who are cutting on to the base and going into the base as a form of protest uh, and trying to get trials themselves. Um, I should also say that in the four countries where the United States uh, has nuclear weapons over in Europe, uh, all of those countries, um, there are very high levels of dissent as regards the, uh, the, the population. Not actually dissent, but uh, they don't want the country to possess the nuclear weapons. In every country, is, it, is, it is well over 60%. So it may not be making the big-time media news, but there is a rumble going on. And um, you, you, you all are definitely a big, a big part of it. Um, so we need to fan those flames. And I, I want to just emphasize that um, we can't, um, and I, I, I kind of agree with you, we can't depend on our politicians, our, even our liberal politicians, to kind of carry the word. It needs to come from kind of down under. Um, Claire just said that um, you're tilling the ground uh, of, of this for this conversation. I think it's a kind of wonderful that you as plowshares are, are tilling the ground. Uh, <laughs> I think that was a that was a wonderful kind of um, metaphor that that you used. Um, I don't know if you used it on purpose, but I, I heard it. Uh, we we are Barcrawl Radio, and we are talking with Martha Hennessy, Carmen Trotta, Claire Grady, Patrick O'Neill, uh, all of the Catholic worker who are under house arrest now for an incursion on the Kings Bay Naval Base in protest of the uh, world killing Trident missiles that are. Um, in abundance there at that base down in Georgia. Um, does anyone have any last uh, comments uh, before we cut off? 
I do want to just mention that we are none of us are any longer under house arrest. There's a little more um, leeway, and we're all on a curfew. And in court, it did seem that uh, Judge Wood was suggesting that we could uh, submit uh, to get some relief for that. And, and so some of us are a little hopeful that we'll be coming off the ankle monitors. Uh, Patrick wanted to say something. Yeah. I, I think there's, a, there's an area that is really, really being ignored, not just by mainstream media, but even progressive media. And that's the role that the military plays in global warming and its carbon footprint. And the military is very, very secretive about their carbon footprint. They don't want us to know that they're the number one user of petroleum in the United States. That probably means the world. Mm. And so, you know, I'm coming to the conclusion from talking to people about this and reading about it, that we can't stop global warming unless we disarm. Mm. And I think that's how we can connect the two issues. We won't stop global warming unless we disarm. And that's, that's something people have to understand that militarism and global warming are one and the same thing. We want to thank you all for uh, for joining us for this conversation. And I hope, um, Martha and Carmen, uh, you are in New York and we'll get you again. And Claire and Patrick, if you're ever there and we get you all together, I think we could have a very interesting conversation at a bar over some beer and, and whatever. I think it'd be great. I think we could, if we could put it together, um, we could set a date and, and maybe uh, these folks, maybe Claire and uh, Maybe they would come. Maybe they would yeah. travel. Yeah, yeah. we'll I mean, look, for, we'll we'll look forward to that. I don't eat beer. We drink ice cream. I mean, so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we can we can make that happen. No, we can make anything happen. I was even thinking maybe uh, finding a local theater <laughs> yeah. that we could set up and do it there. But a bar would be even better, I think. <laughs> nice cool. to meet you. Nice to meet nice you, to meet Claire you and Patrick and and Martha and Carmen. Um, Thank you so much. Well, I, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna drop by the. Um, the uh, St. Mary's house and the St. Joseph house, right? Down in the, down, yeah. down in the Bowery. Mary, Mary house. Mary yeah, house. Mary house, St. Joseph. St. Joseph house, down in the Bowery where you, where you two work. I was down there once and Carmen was sweating bullets, getting dinner ready <laughs> for everybody. It was a hot, hot summer day. And it was like, you were just working. I, 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 I have to get down there and help you out. Thank you very much all. Thank you. And, Safe and, travels and home. Good luck. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. Bless you. Oh.